We got thousands are still coming, just like last week, but they're going to have to find their way in, and we're going to we're going to get rolling. I uh, have a few announcements, um, but let's do a, a quick radio check. If you are listening by radio, can you hear okay? Okay, we got a thumbs up. Sounds good. Um, if you didn't get your notes or your song sheets, or there's also a uh, participation survey, they are on the uh, either end, I think. Um, at least I know they're down this end for sure. So you can get a hold of those and uh, take advantage of them. Uh, one of the things that you'll find on the handouts is a half sheet of paper that we passed out, let, let Rick Westerhoff through, um, that you'll find last week we had uh, given out as well. And if you'd like to be involved in some sort of fellowship group, there's two different kinds of things we're doing to try to keep things as normal as we can and to be able to enjoy fellowship even with restrictions. So one of our campfire fellowships, uh, we're kind of organizing them geographically and we got a couple teams now that are going to be doing some and we're formulating the rest of them this week. But if you'd like to be involved somehow, there's a place to check off for that. Or if you'd like to be involved in some sort of online fellowship by way of prayer group or Bible study, you can indicate that as well. Um, and we're getting the material in place and we'll be kicking that off fairly soon as well. Also, you probably know that Hands and Feet um, Camp it didn't happen this year. But that doesn't mean that hands and feet needs still aren't there. Um, so I do have a, a need that's pretty urgent in town, if we, any of you would like to help with that. Um, we have in Mancelona the need for a wheelchair ramp. It's not an extravagant one like some of the ones that we've done, um, but they have a, uh, a granddaughter who has some extreme health issues and has been um, in uh, spinal surgery. She has two, two major issues. One is a rare case of, um, uh, of a type of dwarfism and also a spinal issue where she's had, uh, will probably be in a wheelchair the rest of her life. And she's coming home with one of the, the halos that they put on people to keep everything rigid. And that's gonna be, she's gonna be coming home in the next week or two. So if you're able to help out uh, we have to plan it, order the materials, and, and get it all together. But if you can be an assembler or you can be an installer, you'd like to be part of that. Um, I think this is something we're able to do even if we can't have a camp. Um, I met, met with the grandmother this week, and, and on top of all of this, her husband just had a major heart attack and had quadruple bypass surgery. Um, so there, there's a lot of need there. So if we're able to, please see me after the service and if you'd like to be involved with that. And I understand also in the interest of trying to keep our connections that the men's, did the men's have their men's breakfast yesterday? Yes. Was everyone fed up? Okay, anyway, that's going to be something that as long as uh, regulations permit, it's not normal, you know, it's distance, bring your own breakfast, but that started again yesterday, uh, so keep an eye on that, that's a once a month thing for the men as well. Also, you probably have begun to wonder how long can we continue to meet here at Cedar Bend. Uh, we're going to go right through the winter. Um, just, just keep coming, it'll be cold, you'll be cool. Bring your brooms. Yes, bring your shovel. Uh, actually, we hope to, and again, this is all contingent on regulations and so forth, when it does get too cold, move back to the church. However, in the meantime, we are trying to get a team together to get the church ready for us being able to go back, if we're able to. And part of that means, um, at least the way the regulations are now, the sanctuary is a venue, the Fellowship Hall is a venue, the downstairs is a venue. So we'd like to get, if you're a tech person at all, into computers, video, audio, or anything, we could use your help. Because we want to be able to replicate whatever's going on in the sanctuary, in the Fellowship Hall, and in the downstairs, so that we are able to spread out and, and you know comply as best we can with what we've got. So I'm putting the plea out there. If you could be part of a team like that and be able to help, uh, and you may be good in a computer area, but you know nothing about video or vice versa, or maybe your audio, 
any input that you can have that could be helpful. Um, I don't think there's any of us that are professionals. So a lot of what's going to happen is we're going to be uh, investigating and learning. And we've got some people that can consult with us uh, as long as we can ask them the questions and, and have some folks to do that. So uh, that's our, our job right now is to try to get the church um, as functional as we can for that as well. And I do want to thank all the people who have been helping get set up here, uh, doing the audio and the video type things, and Sammy and Chris, and there have been people helping with the singing. Appreciate that, because in case you don't realize, uh, this isn't the perfect venue for this kind of a thing. And then we get feedback, and we have uh, other issues at times, and we're doing the best we can with the equipment that we have, but there are certain things that are just unique to this environment that make it difficult. So if you see Sammy or Chris, give them a big hug. No, can't do that. It's cool. Uh, just give them money, they said. That would be their, appreciate them that way. Or anybody else who's been helping out. I know Tom's been heading up a team of people, been getting here early. Many people pitch in afterwards, so we're really thankful for that. Uh, we're going to get into our song time in a minute, but before we do that, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we say pretty much every week and everywhere we've been, that these are unusual, uncertain times. They take a toll on us. They take a toll on the fellowship, or at least the way we fellowship, and it makes it more difficult. And Lord, I pray that you'll continue to give us wisdom about how to be able to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, but to do it in a way that's cooperating uh, with the world around us and provides a safe environment for as many as possible. Lord, I pray for those that can't even, um, th that there's no way they can even come out to this, that they're online uh, because of concerns. I pray that you'll bless them this morning as well. And Father, for all of us, give us wisdom. Give us patience with each other. Uh, give us a heart of submission to our government. And Lord, we pray for them this morning. Uh, it is such a difficult thing to bring people together and move them in a direction when people's thoughts are in so many different places. But Father, help us this morning as we sing your praises, we sing of your Son, we sing of your Spirit, uh, that from the bottom of our hearts we are worshiping you today. Father, guide our hearts and minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Good morning again. I, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you see something and it just strikes you funny. And that kind of hit me right now as I saw Brian standing here. Uh, you notice like the plexi was not made for him. And I just had this flashback to home improvement with Tim Allen looking over the, oh, over the fence at whoever the neighbor was. I can't remember the guy's name. Who was it? Wilson, over the fence. And I, I just almost lost it over there. I was like, okay. Well, anyway, just so you know that you're not the only one that gets weird thoughts that go through your mind from time to time. Um, but anyway, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we uh, dive into his word this morning. Father, we ask for your guidance, for your wisdom. Uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be very active, teaching us the truth that you have for us. Father, during this time of pandemic, please encourage our hearts. Show us the kind of things that you want us to be doing as the church of Jesus Christ, the, the church of the one true God. Guide our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been looking several weeks at the corona to-do list, uh, the kind of things that I ought to involve myself in if I want to be vibrant, if I want my faith to be strong at a very difficult time. Uh, and we're doing so looking at the book of Hebrews, we're looking at other places as well, because the, the Hebrew Christians were in a similar boat, circumstances slightly different, but it was very tempting and easy for them to kind of just back away from church involvement because persecution was coming to them. Things were difficult. So they were kind of stepping back from their faith. And the book of Hebrews was written to them to say, guys, are you going a little crazy? How could you do this? What goes on in your mind to think that you could back away from the church of the living God? And in our environment, the same question gets asked, that even though coming together is more difficult and finding creative ways of connecting uh, takes creativity, the same question is asked of us today. How easily or how do we um, stay involved or how easily do we find ourselves drifting? Because difficult times usually causes people to drift. So we've looked at five things on our corona to-do list, and they're all listed there. Uh, we show love by being law-abiding, submitting to our government, uh, not just going out and doing what we think we ought to do because we think we ought to do it, and it doesn't matter what the government says. Uh, we show um, our love by praying for all men, even those we violently, internally sometimes, disagree with or have a hard time with even looking at them. That doesn't matter. We show love by genuinely praying for them. Um, we looked at showing love by drawing near to God, holding fast to hope, stirring, stirring the pot for each other when it comes to love and good works. And we're going to pick up with that theme a little bit and carry that in a step further. Uh, but the verse we ended with was Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together as the, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, the fellowship of Jesus Christ is even more important the more difficult things get. For the Hebrew Christians, the more difficult they got, the less they came together. The more they just kind of withdrew from everything. And Hebrews is written to encourage them in that. Um, to do number six, if you're filling in your notes, is our task is to confirm my love by affirming my faith. Confirm my love by affirming my faith. Uh, I don't think there's a person who's ever professed Jesus Christ who doesn't ask the question, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know it really didn't take, it, it took place, that I said the right words, I did the right thing, and, and, and especially if you have a period of sin where you fall. The question comes up, how do I know? How, do, how am I sure? So at any time, it's always a good time to spend time before the Lord and affirm my trust in him, that I genuinely belong to him. Uh, the theme of the, of the rest of the verses in Hebrews that come after verse 25 um, kind of go along the line that stepping away from the fold is risky business, the fold being us, the church. 
Uh, and it's not talking about church attendance, so to speak, and that my body is physically there. Because your body physically can be anywhere, and you can be mentally way, way far away. It's more of a heart issue. Where is my heart in relation to the fellowship and church of God during difficult times? Uh, corporate worship, um, as we come together, isn't just about singing music and listening to a sermon. We looked at, last time we were together, that mutual encouragement is a huge reason why we come together, to help each other, to build each other up, uh, to, to give each other that little shot in the arm, perhaps, that we really need so badly. Uh, and, and if we have true faith, if Jesus Christ has truly saved us, uh, that faith drives into us, into our heart, certain key obediences that are normal, that are natural, that you really shouldn't have to have somebody tell you. You, you may learn about them, but they're things that are true inside of you. Um, for instance, if you are a hunter or a fisherman or a quilter, there are certain things that you're just driven to do. And sometimes people think you're kind of crazy because you're driven so hard that they say you're slightly obsessed. Well, when Jesus Christ comes in, he comes in in power and he creates a new obsession. There's something in us that should drive us, that should compel us as we go along. Uh, certain things that are natural is the assembling of yourselves together. Things that are natural are singing praises to the Lord, wanting to hear his music. Uh, song. It could be encouraging others. It's kind of something that just happens or should happen to you when Jesus Christ moves in. These things are normal. Giving, the Bible gives instruction about it, but there should be a natural inclination in my heart to be able to give. Um, but the problem is sometimes when things get tough, uh, we, we pull back from those things that should be normal and natural. And those things that should be normal and natural if we can depart from them easily, should be cause for us to really take a look at our faith and see if it is authentic and is it real saving faith that God has given us. Uh, it's been said since this pandemic has happened, Barna did a little bit of research, and they went out to Christians in general and they said, since the pandemic, what have you done with church and what have you done with church-related things? And they came back with one in three Christians who were church attenders currently are doing nothing. Nothing. It's not like they're involved in online because of health issues or concerns. It's that they completely stepped back and one third of those that were in church, according to the Barner research, they've checked out. They've not, they're not doing anything that would be normal and natural. Um, the same research that was done uh, of churches, they just picked one thing that should be normal and natural, and it's giving. Okay, how has giving impact been impacted for churches since the pandemic? Uh, and they said that 43% of the churches indicated a 29% drop in giving. Uh, now, there's reasons sometimes when things get tough, people can't give. Uh, but there's other times where they're completely unaffected, but giving isn't something that's normal and natural. So they don't do it. So that, that's made a difference. And in case you're wondering, well, how's Pathway doing with all of that? Um, we're, we're holding our own, but we're down 19%. Um, who knows? Is it pandemic related? Is it other factors related? Uh, but, but the point that I'm trying to make isn't a plea for money. It's that often when things go bad, we pull back and stop doing this kind of things that would have been normal and natural when things were going okay. So the key question is, if I'm a person who can easily become uninvolved, uh, and that's a heart thing, that doesn't mean attending, it means uninvolved in church, uninvolved in other people, or if I'm the kind of person that can just be very happy to live on the edge of the church, and not really get involved at all, not, not really uh, encourage. I, if I gave a list of people that I'm actively involved in encouraging them, the list would be zero because it's just not a priority for me. If I'm in that boat, what can that say about my heart? 
Because there's going to be a time, and, and all of us know when we go into a dark place, when we're in a dark place, we kind of pull away. And we will often pull away from the people that could help us the most. Uh, and, and we just uh, cut ourselves off, and that's not a good thing. Because the Bible tells us during hard times, you need your brothers and sisters Christ even more than you did before. So as you look at the book of Hebrews, I'm giving you a couple things. And, and the verses we're going to look at today, a lot of preachers will stay away from. Uh, because they're not easy verses. And in some cases, there's some controversy that surrounds some of them. But Hebrews as a book screams out, what could be better than serving the living God and being involved with his people. So I've given you a couple study helps as you look through uh, the book of Hebrews, and there's a basic outline, uh, and it goes along the, the, the idea, what could be better? Because Jesus is a superior person in chapters one through six, and it deals with who Christ is. And it's like, how could anyone in their right mind ever walk away from a savior like that? The second part of Hebrews has to do with a superior priesthood, or what he has done. Aside from who Jesus is, look at what he's done. How could you walk away from that? And then it concludes with faith being the superior principle. And it says, when you look at what faith, authentic faith does for a person, how could you backtrack and leave that? It makes no sense. There's no good reason. Uh, and there's also five exhortations, and I'm not even going to talk about those, but those are just for you to look at as you read through the book of Hebrews. Five exhortations given to people who are prone to pull back who are prone to not let the church be a priority in their life. Uh, but there's also five warning passages in Hebrews, and they're listed there in your notes. And these have caused Christians to come almost to uh, fists with each other, uh, where they really disagreed on these. And it's really a shame because at the bottom line, whichever camp you find yourself, the, the message is still the same. You need to know that you know that you know that Jesus Christ is alive in your heart. Uh, I've met many people over the years, especially because I went to a Christian high school. And there's people that have had Christian around them everywhere they've gone. It's Christian in their family. It's Christian at their school. And, and they're so surrounded by it, they think they're just Christian because of their environment. And I've had friends who, who have gone through all the motions of church for years, who finally get in college and have their faith tested, and they're like, you know what, this isn't my faith. It's my parents' faith. And, and, and they find out they have no relationship with God. And it's like a crisis point, and some embrace it, some just chuck it. And they say, oh, this isn't real, this isn't good. Because the faith that they had, although they believed it to be authentic, never changed their heart and gave them those natural things that Jesus Christ inside a heart should give somebody. And it made a huge, huge impact in their life when they realized that their faith was not real. So as we look at these warning passages, I'm going to give a, a little bit of a theological background, because I, I could almost guarantee within this group of people here, there's different uh, these two different camps are represented, and usually somebody in between. Uh, if you've heard, and kind of raise your hand, the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism, you know, some of you are like, oh, please don't talk about that. I've heard so much about that, that just drives me nuts. I, I just want to do it in a broad kind of way, and I'm not here uh, to, to change anyone unless you don't agree with me. Uh, but there's different views out there that real, true believers happen to have. Uh, Jacob Arminius, his, his thinking would be, um, you might have heard of Guy John Wesley, might have heard of him, especially if you're in the Wesleyan tradition. And in that particular camp, the belief is, if you make a steadfast decision to reject everything that Christianity has, that you could lose your salvation that you could have had it and you become an apostate and you turn your back on everything that God has and live as if the cross never happened and seal yourself in that lifestyle, you could lose your salvation. Now there's another camp called Calvinism. Anybody familiar with that one? And I will tell you this whole doctrine and the fight between them caused me many, many years of, of great 
soul turmoil to coming with, with my view of God. So if you're ever in a, a, a battle over this question that I'm describing today, please talk to me because I've been through it. I've had sleepless nights because it's, it really has a lot to do with your view of God. And, and I've come out with all the right answers, so please just come to me. Uh, I'd be happy to share with you. But this would be John Calvin, some of you know R.C. Sproul, uh, John Piper, uh, John MacArthur. There's different ones out there that would fall into that camp per se. And, and they would say that you don't lose your salvation. It's something God gives you. And if you genuinely accepted him, you can't get unborn from a family no more than you can get unborn from your physical family. That the saving power of Jesus Christ will keep you. The difference is when you come to Hebrews and you hear these warning passages, it brings to light the fact that you were never in the faith, that you just made a profession on the surface and you never let Christianity down into your heart. So when it talks about losing the faith, it's really a faith that you only professed and you never really, really had inside of you. And the big difference between these two camps, as, as you look through these warning passages, because as you read them on your own, you're going to see that, well, yeah, I can see what they could think this way, and I see how they could think this way, uh, because they're not easy. They're not easy passages at all. Um, and two things, and you can put in your notes, that come to make a difference in their interpretation things that, that you bring to these passages. One, who were they written to? And if you were um, more of in the camp of, of John Wesley that you could lose your salvation, you're going to say, well, this was written to just Christians, people who were genuinely saved. And that makes a difference. The others would say, well, no, it's not really written to just Christians. Uh, it's more written in a pastoral kind of way, the way I would preach this morning. So as I'm preaching to you, I am preaching as if you're all believers, but I'm not so sure you all are. Ha <laughs> ha. No, I don't know. And, and I'm assuming in a group this size that there's possibility that someone doesn't, even though I might address the assembly as believers, I really know that not everybody is. And so in that case, as I'm talking to the group and I'm giving these warning passages, it could seem like, like that they, uh, I could be talking to someone who professed but did not possess it. And the second thing is, are the conditional clauses that are part of these warning passages. In English, you only have one kind of um, cause and effect in a conditional clause. If I say, if you come to church next week, Bob Barr will give you $50. Okay, so how do you get $50 from Bob Barr? Everybody would love to know that. Get that wallet out of his and have him give him $50. In that statement, it's an if-then, cause and effect. You come to church, you open Bob Barr's wallet. Okay, that's English. Greek is different. Greek has a different way of looking at its conditional clauses, and it's called something called evidence to effect, and I'm going to illustrate what that means. So some people, as they come to the warning passage, would say, this isn't meaning you lose your salvation. This means that the if proves whether or not you are in this condition. It doesn't cause it, per se. Uh, each type of clause here has a type of contingency with a consequence, but the consequence might be an inference or an equivalency. What do I mean by that? And you've got some verses to look at on your own there. John 15, 14 reads this way. If you are my friends, I'm sorry, you are my friends, if you do what I command you. Now we know from studying the scripture that salvation is not a works thing. So when it says, you're my friends, if you do what I command you, obedience is not the basis for this relationship, but an indicator of it. So the if there is not a cause and effect, it's a proving or an inference. Hebrews 12.8, it says, if you are without discipline, you are illegitimate and not sons. In, that, in those verses, absent of discipline is not the cause of being an illegitimate child of God, but evidence for it. And as you read up those, look at those other verses on your own, you're going to see that the if is an inference, not necessarily a cause and effect. And it makes a difference when you come to the book of Hebrews because some of these warning passages, uh, Hebrews 3.6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. 
And then you take that same thing into verse 14, a few verses later. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If that's a cause and effect, then you have a high probability that salvation depends on you. How much can you persevere? You might have accepted him by faith, but now it's up to you. You've got to do the, the endurance thing, or you might not have what you started out with. So in those two camps, you kind of see the differences of the way they approach Hebrews. And I just wanted to throw that out and give you some tools. Uh, you say, well, Dan, which one are you? Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? I am a Calvinian, okay? I'm just one of those people running for political office, and I agree with everyone. No, not, that, not necessarily, but it's the idea that I think there's elements on both sides that are true and, and make a difference. And if you really want to study this more and you can't sleep at night, I have a perfect book for you called Four Views of the Warning Passages in Hebrews. And they take these thoughts and ideas and give you a whole lot more because if this is something your mind is like stuck on and you find it very difficult to, to get an answer for, that would be a book that you could look at. But whether you're in the camp that these warning passages are, are dire warnings to stay with the faith with the possible result that if you become so set in your ways against Jesus Christ that you could lose what was once given to you. Or you're in the other camp that says, no, I know it's been entrusted to him and my eternal security rests in his hands, not my hands. And that's true, you still have to come to the place where you say, but is my faith authentic? Did I just, just come into a lifestyle? Do I, am I connected with the church just because the people are nice and potluck fellowships are wonderful? Uh, I, or am I there because I know the living God lives in my heart? I know he compels me and I can't walk away from church without something going on inside of me, pushing me back, saying that you need this, because Jesus just doesn't fold his arms when he comes into a person's heart. Even when you walk away from him, he's like saying, I'm not, I'm not letting you go. I'm gonna convict you, I'm gonna pull you back, I'm gonna keep working. But there's some people who can step out of church and they can't testify to that. They can't say, I, I don't sense anything going on different. In fact, I got extra sleep, I got to go out, and I'm going with my family, we had a great time here, and we did that there. And the fact that they're missing and they're not vitally involved in the church, it's like no big deal. That's the time when a heart needs to say, what is my faith? Is my faith real enough to a powerful God that compels me to have to come in? This idea between the two camps that I'm talking about divides Christians all over the place. We can never have a theology that puts our salvation as a good work of my own. And that, for by grace are you saved through faith. But we have to realize that within the church of Jesus Christ, there are people who see it both ways, and I'll bet you within our own church there are, and that, that's fine. And, and the attitude that those groups need to have each other, I think, are typified by a, a little discussion that I wanna have, or I'll read a discussion that between Charles Simeon and John Wesley, as John Wesley was older. Uh, Simeon comes and says, Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin with the combat, with your permission I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would have never thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? Wesley, yes, I do indeed. Simeon, and do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ? Wesley, yes, solely through Christ. Simeon, but sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterward by your own works? Wesley, no, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Simeon, allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? Wesley, no. Simeon, what then? Are you upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Wesley, yes, altogether. 
Simeon, and is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Wesley, yes, I have no hope but in him. Simeon, then, sir, with your leave, I will put my dagger up again, for this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification, my faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold as I hold it. And therefore, if you would please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in all things wherein we agree. See, a lot of times when those two camps fight, it, it's, a, it's a word game. It's semantics. Because when you come to the book of Hebrews and you look at these warning passages, the bottom line is, whichever camp you're in, you need to know that you know that Jesus Christ lives in your heart. And sometimes pastors are a little afraid to preach sermons like this because you want to assume that your congregation's all saved, that everybody knows Jesus Christ. But I've known too many people who have faked it, and the faking wasn't um, that they were just faking everyone else and they knew they were. They had deceived themselves and really believed that, that praying that prayer absent of a real heart that believed it, that praying that salvation prayer was all that you had to do. And then after that, heard sermons by people who kept saying, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. So you look back to a time in your life and say, you know, I prayed that when I was six. And once saved, always saved, I'm saved. Because I said those words. It's a matter of heart. It's giving your heart to the living God and trusting in his salvation, his work on the cross, completely as the basis of my salvation. Not that I someday sat down with somebody and said a few words that I may or may not have fully understood. And I'm not here to try to make anybody doubt their salvation if God's really in you. It's like, oh man, pastor got me all nervous today. I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. Well, guess what? Make sure you are. Make sure at the end of the day, whether you knew it or not, that you have bowed your knee and that you're not a person who can easily just withdraw from the fellowship without something happening inside, without being drawn back into it. As we look at Hebrews, the verses that we're going to look at today start in verse 26. And, and it, the emphasis here follows the last sermon that we had about assembling yourself together, not forsaking that. And it goes on to say in Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's pretty scary. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So when it says forsake not the assembling of yourselves together because you guys need to get together for encouraging, the very next sentence is like, you know, if you can deliberately step outside and it's no big deal and you can find yourself doing that, you're not going to find a sacrifice for sins anywhere else in the world. Some people have taken this passage to mean if you do step away, you can't come back. That there's no more sacrifice for your sins because you kind of sinned away the day of grace and tough luck for you. And that's really not the passage here. It's really saying if you could go on sinning deliberately. In other words, if you could go on and live as if the cross never happened. And you just can pull away and it's no big deal. There is no other place for your conscience to get clean. There is no other place for victory over sin. There is no other place for your heart to be made right again. You can look for everything, every place that you go. You will never find anything better. If you go on as if the cross never happened, you can step away from the church of God, then you will not find what you're looking for any place else. And then he gives three appeals to make sure that your faith is authentic. That, that you know that the voice of Jesus is in your heart is real and that you haven't inherited your faith or adopted a lifestyle that just seems comfortable because of the world you were born into. And the first one is based on the history of Israel. Verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses 
dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Historically, that was true. You didn't play games with the law of God if you were in Israel. Two or three people, you violated the law, your life was brought to an end. Pretty severe consequences. But verse 29 goes on to say, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? There's some heavy stuff going on here because the passage is speaking to people who have been in church. They have heard the gospel. They have heard all that God can do for them, but they haven't necessarily embraced it. For those people to deliberately go on sinning after hearing everything and at least in their heads understanding it, for them to walk away, it's worse than if you had violated the law and got killed back when you were part, if you were part of Israel. And those phrases there that trampled underfoot the Son of God. That's what a person does when they hear the gospel and it doesn't really sink in and change them. It's as if they took Jesus Christ and trampled on him. They profaned the blood of the covenant. Uh, the first one trampled under the foot of God. This is despising his person. But then if you go on and you're like that, you not only despise him, you despise, despise the blood of the covenant, you despise what he did for you. Outrage the spirit of grace, you despise his love. If, if I can do that and I can just walk away from church and shit, no big deal. I need to look at my heart. I need to look at my faith. And am I, am I in a worse case than they would have been in Israel if I disobeyed the law? Could that be me? Could I be outraging the spirit, outraging the, the grace, spirit of the grace of God in my life? Am I trampling Jesus Christ underfoot because I've heard all this great salvation stuff, but I never embraced it? I never really made it personal as the thing that, that drives my heart. Second appeal to authentic faith, first one is based upon history. Second one is based on scripture itself. For we know him who said vengeance, and vengeance is not the best translation there. Justice is a better word. Uh, most times when we think of vengeance, we think somebody's mad and they just go, oh, I'm going to vengeance on you. That's not how God is. It's justice here. Justice is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and by context without authentic faith. To come and just think that somehow I'm going to skirt in because of my parents' faith or because of my good deeds. It's a fearful thing to come before the living God with any other kind of faith than the kind of faith he told you you need to have. To just think that somehow oh, he, Jesus won't ever, ever condemn someone to hell because he's a God of love and that's all that he is. The faith that he has described in the scripture is the basis of coming forth to him. He has every right and he is just to accept only those that come to him by true saving faith. Uh, we had a group here doing some singing with a small youth group uh, a couple weeks ago and they kept practicing. And, and I kept hearing the same phrase. You know how some songs, they just sing the same phrase over and over again? Some people like that. It drives me crazy. Uh, but the, this phrase stuck in my head and it was a good thing that it did. It's, it's your breath in my lungs. If you heard that song before, and I don't know the whole song, that may be the whole song. Uh, but I heard it so many times, it just made me meditate and think about it, that it's your breath in my lungs. When I take my next breath, it's your breath in my lungs. God is perfectly just to require what we do with that breath that he gives us in the life that we live. He is not unloving in any way to send someone to hell because they wouldn't trust in him. Because it's his breath in our lungs. And as he gives it, he says, I command people everywhere to repent and to believe in me. And if I trample underfoot the breath of God that he has given me, I get what I deserve. He is not unloving or unjust. He has said, I give you breath so that you can return it in faith and you can trust in me. So based on history, I need to have authentic faith. 
based upon the scripture, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God without authentic faith. And then based upon my profession, verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Think about that. These people, at least in their profession, showed some fruit, so much so that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Now think about that today. They came to plunder your property. Mancelona, come on, shotguns come out. Over my dead body, you're not getting this from me. No way, you know, it's just the way it goes. It's like, no way, you're not plundering my property. But they accepted it joyfully because they were being worthy, you know, thinking they were worthy to, to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So it, whether they were saved or just faking it, there was enough fruit in their life that they had some good perspectives here. And at one point, it seems like they even said, you know what, go ahead, take it. You haven't seen my other place. It's much better than this one. And you can't take that from me. They had that kind of history to look back on. They had fruit based upon their profession. But there's a possibility. It was all man-made, all manufactured, that it was not authentic. Or they were in danger of turning their back completely on the faith that they once professed. In any case, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God without authentic faith. So the kind of question that every one of us has to ask, my Christianity, does it go down to the very heart and soul of who I am? Or is it all external? Do I live because of the expectation of others? Or would I live the exact same way I live if I was the only believer because Jesus is real in my heart and he is compelling me. He is, and I know he is, the reason that I do what I do. Three big reasons that appeal to the need for authentic faith for people who were tossing theirs. Hebrews 10, 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And it's really hard when I see that word endure, what does it make you think of it the same way I'm thinking? I gotta do this, I gotta buck up under it. Biblical endurance is not a work of the human heart. It is a work of the living God in you. You could define it this way, it's that continuous, continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the divine grace that has begun in their heart is continued and brought to completion. Jesus comes in to make you endure, to not let you give up, to keep prodding you back into the fold. And it doesn't mean, you know, and I know people that have thought that it's possible that I could lose my salvation. They would come down the church aisle every single week because they sinned. Anybody sinned this week? I'm giving an altar call. Everybody ought to be up here if that were the case. And, and it's not the case. It's not, it's not that, that my sins um, separate me from God in the sense that I lose what I've been given. It separates me in the sense that I can't hear his voice very well that I don't have very good fellowship anymore. But when I have that drawing inside of me that, that you were wrong, you were sinful, you're trampling him under your feet, it, it pulls me back. But if I can step away, it's not a big deal. That's all the more reason for me to see as my faith, genuine and authentic. The last three verses, and I'm just gonna read them quickly. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come without delay. That reward is coming by divine timing. 
Jesus isn't going to make you wait and play games with you. A Savior arrives precisely when he means to. And when he comes, his reward will be with him. And he's not going to, in his vengeance, say somehow, oh, you know what, those Christians were so bad, I'm not coming for them for a while. I'm just going to let them stew in their own juices and get their own. Jesus says, be aware. This reward that, is, that you can have confidence in is coming. I'm bringing it with me and I won't delay. The reward is received by faith. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's pretty sobering. The reward, the reward results in preservation. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Part of the corona to-do list in the time of affliction and difficulty, check your faith. Make sure that you know that you know you're a child of the living God. 2 Corinthians 13, we read these words. Examine, literally test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And he's writing to a church when he says this. Test or prove yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? And he's kind of tongue-in-cheek there, saying a little bit sarcastically. Test yourselves. Know that you know during difficult times that you are a child of the living God, that you aren't going in on somebody else's coattails, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Among all the other things that you do, if you get this one wrong, you get the others wrong. We need to know that we know that Jesus is the cornerstone. The one that I have in, in the Bible calls it the inner witness of the Holy Spirit within me that compels me to be involved with his people, to love him above all else, to, to love him purely from my heart, to turn my back on sin, to give the way I ought to give, to encourage the way I ought to give. That's what Jesus, by this power of the Spirit, does in us. Those are natural and normal. If they're not, test, prove within your heart that you are a child of God. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that at a time of difficulty that all of us will just take a moment or two or a day or whatever it is to just be honest before you. To know, as your scriptures say, to make our calling and election sure. That we're not embracing Christianity only on the surface. That we could not leave your church. You wouldn't let us. Our heart wouldn't let us. And even though we struggle and fall, we know you're in us, pulling us back to yourselves. May we know the power of the living God within us, even in hard times. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
today, your to-do list, is to be able to confirm your faith. Did I say that right? Confirm your love by affirming your faith. Spend some time with the Lord. If you know him as your Savior, rejoice in your salvation. If there's any doubt, it doesn't need to be there. It can be gone in an instant when you accept him and his cross work as the sufficient down payment for your salvation. And no more games, no more facade, but genuine faith. There's never been a more important time when things are hard to know that you know that you know that you belong to Jesus. Father, take us from here. Make us people who solidify our faith and confirm to ourselves before you that we are your children. And then, Lord, help us to continue to move forward in faith, looking for that great reward that has been promised. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're leaving, if you want to take part in the Hands and Feet Project, please come on in and I'll fill you in on some details.